this is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. What's up, book friends? I hope wherever you are, you're staying cool. It is hot as balls here in Portland today. I'm recording this episode in May, and it's supposed to get into the 90s today, which isn't natural for Portland this time of year. I absolutely hate it. I am not a hot weather person at all. And if this is any indication of what the weather is going to be like all summer, I am going to be one cranky bitch the next few months. Needless to say, I do not have a hot beverage going on today. It's all about the coconut pineapple flavored sparkling water for me. It's very refreshing and I need it. Now, even though I'm cranky about the weather, I'm happy to be talking to you about books. I mean, when do books not make you happy? This week, I'll share my thoughts on She Started It by Sean Gilbert, Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler, Confessions by Kanae Monado, and Four Found Dead by Natalie D. Richards. Yeah, I had a really good reading week last week, got lots of books in. So you have four reviews this week. But before the reviews, let's take a look at what's new this week. Now, as I've said before, I do my best to capture what is new based on what I find on Goodreads and a couple of book blogs, but this is likely not a comprehensive list. So if you're an author and I missed your book, I apologize. But here's what I have. Up first is A Crooked Mark by Linda Cow. This is a dark and sinister debut YA novel about a teen boy who must hunt down those marked by the devil, including the girl he has fallen for. Next, we have An Echo in the City by KX Song. Two star-crossed teenagers fall in love during the Hong Kong protests in this searing contemporary novel about coming of age in a time of change. Then we have Best Vacation Ever by Jessica Consolo. Two best friends, five hot guys, one dream vacation. What could possibly go wrong? Next is Garden of the Cursed by Katie Rose Poole. In this thrilling YA fantasy-slash-mystery duology, curse-breaker Marlo Briggs reluctantly pretends to be in love with one of the most powerful nobles in Karaza City to gain entry into an illustrious and deadly society that holds clues to her mother's disappearance. Next is Hotel Laguna by Nicola Harrison. According to Publishers Weekly, Nicola Harrison captures all the turmoil of the post-war world of the women who found factory work until the men came home and then found themselves with no place to go except back home. Next is Lucky Red by Claudia Cravens, a vibrant and cinematic debut set in the American West about a scrappy orphan who finds friendship, romance, and her true calling as a revenge-seeking gunslinger. Next is Ode to My First Car by Robin Gao. This YA contemporary sapphic romance told in verse is about a bisexual teen girl who falls in and out of love over the course of one fateful summer. Then we have The Fight for Midnight by Dan Solomon. 
It's been a rough year for Alex Collins. In the past 12 months, he's lost his best friend, become the target of the two biggest bullies at school, and been sentenced to community service. But on June 25, 2013, he gets a call for help from Cassie Ramirez, the prettiest girl in school. At last, he feels like his luck might be changing. Next is The Happiness Plan by Susan Mallory. Three women search for joy in number one New York Times bestselling author Susan Mallory's new novel of hope, heartache, and the power of friendship. Next is The Only One Left by Riley Sager. At 17, Lenora Hope hung her sister with a rope, stabbed her father with a knife, took her mother's happy life. It wasn't me, Lenora said, but she's the only one not dead. Then we have The Spare Room by Andrea Bartz. Staying with a friend and her husband is sexier and deadlier than anyone could have imagined in this provocative domestic suspense novel. Next is The Wicked Unseen by Gigi Griffiths. The new girl in town is having trouble fitting into a community that believes there's a secret satanic cult conducting rituals in the woods. When her crush goes missing, she starts to wonder if the town's obsession with evil isn't covering up something far worse. Next is The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. A propulsive page-turner about four families whose lives are changed when the unthinkable happens, and what is lost when we give in to our own worst impulses. Next is 30 to 60 Days by Alakay Wood, a hilarious and irreverent coming-of-age YA novel in which three teens facing uncertain futures embark on a madcap adventure that challenges each of their identities. Then we have This Town is on Fire by Pamela N. Harris, a page-turning YA contemporary novel about what happens when the latest Becky on the internet is your best friend. Then there's Unexpecting by Jen Bailey. Juno meets Heartstopper in this poignant and emotional story about found family, what it means to be a parent, and falling in love. Then we have We Ship It by Lauren Kay. This rom-com debut has a fierce girl energy of the movie Booksmart, blended with the awkwardness of Kelly Quinlan's Late to the Party, topped with a thrilling international meet-cute a la Love and Gelato. Then, What the Neighbors Saw by Melissa Adelman. Desperate Housewives meets the couple next door in a chilling story of murder and intrigue set in a well-to-do D.C. suburb. Next is Where Echoes Die by Courtney Gould. Beck Bershing has been adrift since the death of her mother, a brilliant but troubled investigative reporter. She finds herself unable to stop herself from slipping into memories of happier days, clamoring for a time when things were normal. So when a mysterious letter in her mother's handwriting arrives in the mail with the words, Come and find me, pointing to a town called Backravel, Beck hopes that it may hold the answers. Then we have You're Not Supposed to Die Tonight by Kaylin Bayron. At Camp Mirror Lake, terror is the name of the game, but can you survive the night? Described as a slasher perfect for fans of Fear Street. And the last on my list is Zero Days by Ruth Ware, an adrenaline-fueled thriller that combines Mr. and Mrs. Smith with The Fugitive, about a woman in a race against time to clear her name and find her husband's murderer. This week, I pre-ordered The Only One Left by Riley Sager and You're Not Supposed to Die Tonight by Kaylin Bayron. I'm also super interested in The Whispers by Ashley Adrain, but rumor has it this might be on June's Book of the Month list, so I'm holding out to find out for sure. I also realize that by the time this episode drops, we'll already know whether the book was on the list or not. So either way, the book will be in my possession at some point. I also purchased Hail Mary by Andy Wire because everyone is raving about it on Instagram and I can't be left out. I also got The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig, Before I Let Go by Kennedy Ryan, and Hang the Moon by Jeanette Walls, another one I've heard lots about and feel the need to hop on the train. All of those are ebooks. 
Now to my watch list, I added A Crooked Mark by Linda Cow, Hotel Laguna by Nicola Harrison, and Lucky Red by Claudia Cravens, all on this week's new release list. I also received my Aardvark's Book Club books. I received This Bird Has Flown by Susanna Hoffs and The House in the Orchard by Elizabeth Brooks, and my Book of the Month pick, which was The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brammer. And for those of you wondering why I'm announcing May's books from these two services, it's because, as I mentioned earlier, I record these episodes about a month in advance just to give myself some wiggle room, so I just received those. And then lastly, I also received American Mermaid by Julia Langbine, All That We Never Were by Alice Kellen, and Every Time You Go Away by Abigail Johnson, all courtesy of the publishers via NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. So look for those reviews coming soon. Okay, it's time for the reviews. I'm going to kick this episode off by sharing my thoughts on She Started It by Sean Gilbert. This book was published by William Morrow and Company and was released June 13th, 2023. I received an advanced reader's copy of this book courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. The synopsis reads, The party of a lifetime is nothing like what they expected. Annabelle, Esther, Tanya, and Chloe are best friends, or were as children. Despite drifting apart in adulthood, shared secrets have kept them bonded for better or worse, even as their childhood dreams haven't quite turned out as they had hoped. Then one day they receive a wholly unexpected, but not entirely unwelcome, invitation from another old friend. Poppy Greer has invited them all to her extravagant bachelorette party a first-class plane ticket to three days of white sand, cocktails, and relaxation on a luxe private island in the Bahamas. None of them has spoken to Poppy in years, but Poppy's Instagram pics shows that the girl they used to consider the weakest link in their group has definitely made good and made money. Curiosity gets the better of them. Besides, who can turn down a posh, all-expenses-paid vacation on a Caribbean island? The first-class flight and the island's accommodations are just as opulent as expected, even if the scenic island proves more remote than they had anticipated. Quite remote, in fact, with no cell service and no other guests. The women quickly discover they've underestimated Poppy and each other. As their darkest secrets are revealed, the tropical adventure morphs into a terrifying nightmare. Endlessly twisty, sharply observant, and deliciously catty, She Started It is sure to shock readers until the very end. I've said it before, and I'll say it again for those of you who are new. I love books with questionable characters, and this book is full of them. And while I'd figured out the twist very early in the book, it was still a thrilling ride, and I loved the ending. The book is told from the first-person points of view of Annabelle, Esther, Tanya, and Chloe, former BFFs and the high school mean girls, and then spattered amongst these points of view, we get high school diary entries from Poppy, the poor soul these four bitches relentlessly bullied. Ten years after graduating from high school, Annabelle, Esther, Tanya, and Chloe are still friends. They're very loose quotes around the word friends. Definitely not as close as they were in high school. They care about one another about as much as any vapid, self-absorbed person cares about anyone other than themselves. Much to their surprise, they each receive an invitation to be one of Poppy's bridesmaids during her upcoming nuptials, which means she wants to treat them to an all-expenses-paid trip to the Bahamas for her hen party, which is the UK equivalent of a bachelorette party. Now, they haven't seen Poppy since high school, but for some reason, they all agree to do this. After reading the book, I am certain that I would have tossed the invite and pretended that I didn't get it, simply because of the shame I would have felt over what I'd done to this poor girl. 
I realized though that I'm thinking about what I would have done as me, not what I would do if I were an entitled white woman. While some of them see this as a chance to apologize to Poppy, others of them feel like Poppy has surely forgiven them for what they did to her back then. Otherwise, she wouldn't have invited them on this trip in the first place. So they wipe away whatever smidge of guilt might be tickling their conscience and accept the invitation. When they arrive at the secluded island and meet Poppy, they're surprised at how good she looks. Nothing like the nerdy Poppy they remember from high school. They're also surprised to learn that she put aside her love of art and pursued a career in medicine. She looks great, she seems friendly, happy to see them even. And right after she takes their phones and locks them away because, as she tells them, she wants them to disconnect and enjoy the weekend, I'm sure she does, the wine begins to flow. But when you know it, Poppy hasn't forgotten so easily. And it's not long before old wounds are opened up and dirty secrets that all the women thought they'd hidden away begin to surface. And eventually, everyone is at each other's throats. And then someone disappears, leaving nothing more than a pool of blood in their bungalow. And then another person ends up dead. So is one of them the killer? Or did someone follow them to the island to pick them off one by one? It's probably no surprise that I figured this one out pretty early on. Figuring out the twists in books is like my superpower, so the big shocker at the end was nothing more than a confirmation that I had it right from the beginning. So while there was really no big twist for me, this was still a really fun read. I absolutely hated everyone in the book except for Poppy, and the further along I went, the more I hated the core four and wanted to give Poppy a big hug and tell her that she was going to be okay. I love a good book about revenge. This one serves the revenge with a capital R. I really liked how it all played out, and the ending couldn't have been more perfect. I gave this one three stars on Goodreads simply because there were no real surprises, but I gave it an extra half star on my website simply because I loved the last few pages. I would definitely recommend this to anyone who likes a good, juicy thriller. Next, I'll share my thoughts on Genevieve Wheeler's Adelaide. This book was first published on April 18th, 2023 by St. Martin's Press. The synopsis reads, For 26-year-old Adelaide Williams, an American living in dreamy London, meeting Rory Hughes looks like a lightning bolt out of the blue. This charming Englishman was the one she wasn't even looking for. Does he respond to texts? Honor his commitments? Make advanced plans? Sometimes, rarely, and no, not at all. But when he shines his light on her, the world makes sense, and Adelaide is convinced that, in his heart, he's fallen just as deeply as she has. Then, when Rory is rocked by an unexpected tragedy, Adelaide does everything in her power to hold him together, even if it means losing herself in the process. With unflinching honesty and heart, this relatable debut from a fresh new voice explores grief and mental health while capturing the timeless nature of what it's like to be young and in love with your friends, with your city, and with a person who cannot, will not, love you back. Have you ever read a book and felt as though it was calling you out on your shit? That's how I felt with this book. In the beginning, I felt very exposed, almost as if someone had followed me around when I was in my 20s to early 30s and documented my thoughts and behaviors and then gave me a vagina, named me Adelaide, and wrote a book about me. Now, I know I can't possibly be the only person who read this book and felt that way. For the record, not everything that happened to Adelaide has happened to me, but a lot of her thought processes were 100% spot on. As the synopsis tells us, Adelaide is an American living in London where she attends university to get her master's degree. Adelaide is a good student, she applies herself at school, 
but she also loves to have fun. When she meets handsome Rory Hughes, she's swept off her feet. His coming into her life must be fate. She knows this because several months before, Adelaide had walked up to a guy who was sitting with his friends and told him that he looked like a Disney prince before turning and walking away. That guy was Rory, and the fact that he is now in her life has to mean something. As the two continue to see one another, she realizes that there were several times over the past year or so when the two of them were at the same events, mere feet from one another. Rory has to be her one true love. Unfortunately, Rory just doesn't feel the same. Some days he's happy to see Adelaide, other days he goes completely MIA for days or weeks before finally resurfacing again. Sometimes Adelaide feels like she needs to just throw in the towel and walk away. But then when Rory's present, he's very attentive and sometimes amazing. Maybe he just needs more time, right? I can see why she would think that. Not everyone falls head over heels in love immediately. But like all humans, Rory is a complex individual. He's broken, and he's not good at expressing emotions. He certainly isn't equipped to give Adelaide the love and commitment that she desires, and this further plays into Adelaide's own insecurities and her feelings of being unlovable. There are times when she feels like maybe this is as good as love will ever get for her. Maybe she just needs to settle and accept this. Girl, I've been there. The book is written in an interesting way. First of all, the author doesn't use quotes around the dialogue, so it all appears in italics, so it's almost as though we're sitting in Adelaide's head, and what we are witnessing are her thoughts as she remembers them, not so much as the exact time she experienced them. Another interesting aspect is that the book isn't presented linearly. In fact, when we first meet Adelaide, she's checking herself into a mental hospital because she tried to commit suicide, and then we go back to what led her to do this. We get glimpses of Adelaide before Rory, and even a glimpse of Rory before Adelaide when he met who he thought was his one true love, that is, before he totally fucked it up and lost her for good. It was nice to see this because it gives us a little insight into why Rory behaved the way that he did. We also get to see snippets of Adelaide in high school and the first guy she dated, the same one who made her question her self-worth and put her on the path of putting up with the type of crap that Rory does to her. I thought this book was beautifully written, it was heartbreaking and very frustrating, and by frustrating I mean I knew exactly why Adelaide stuck with Rory. Just when she was about to walk away, he would do or say something that would give her this brief glimmer of hope that would make her think she was overreacting. Why would she possibly give up this great guy? Yeah, it has to be insecurity. And then he'd just do it all over again, until finally she broke. This book touches on loss, grief, sexual assault, verbal and emotional abuse, and mental health issues such as depression and bipolar disorder. So if any of these are triggering to you, you may want to stay away. I will say that while handled realistically, they're also handled with care. As depressing as all of this sounds, the story has a very sweet ending, and even though all of Adelaide's problems aren't tied up in a nice pretty bow, this book is very realistic and makes you feel a whole lot of different things. I would definitely recommend it to anyone looking for an emotional read that packs a hefty punch. I gave this one four stars on Goodreads. It's time for a break. I'll be right back. Now 
it's time for Confessions by Kane Minato and translated by Stephen Snyder. This book was first published in Japan on August 5th, 2008, and in the United States by Mulholland Books on August 19th, 2014. The synopsis reads, Her pupils killed her daughter. Now she will have her revenge. After calling off her engagement in wake of a tragic revelation, Yuko Moraguchi had nothing to live for except her only child, four-year-old Minami. Now, following an accident on the grounds of the middle school where she teaches, Yuko has given up and tendered her resignation. But first, she has one last lecture to deliver. She tells a story that upends everything her students ever thought they knew about two of their peers, and sets in motion a maniacal plot for revenge. Narrated in alternating voices with twists you'll never see coming, Confessions explores the limits of punishment, despair, and tragic love, culminating in a harrowing confrontation between teacher and student that will place the occupants of an entire school in danger. You'll never look at a classroom the same way again. This book was unlike anything I've ever read, and even though I finished it a few days ago, I still can't figure out how I feel about it. I liked that it was different, the ending had a very nice twist, but I wasn't as in love with it as some folks I follow on Bookstagram, though I can see why they liked it. Before I go on, I will warn you that there is a slight spoiler toward the end of the review. It's revealed in the first chapter, so it's not a major spoiler. It's important to the plot, though. I'll be sure to alert you before I go into the spoiler so that you can forward past that and still listen to the first part of this review. So the synopsis reads as though the entire book takes place in a single day in the classroom of a middle school teacher, Yuko Moraguchi, whose four-year-old daughter, Manami, died at the hands of two of Yuko's students. Or at least that's the way I interpreted it based on the synopsis. That's not the case, though. In fact, it's only the first chapter that takes place in Yuko's classroom. The other chapters focus on different viewpoints of two characters who were responsible for Manami's death, and then the class president, and then the mother of one of those who were responsible, ending with a final chapter from Yuko's perspective. I will admit that while reading the first chapter, I wasn't sure if this book was going to be for me. It reads as if Yuko is addressing her students directly, and we, the reader, are one of those students. This was really effective because it makes you feel as though you're sitting in the classroom being lectured. It totally sets the tone. The problem I had while reading it is that I kept thinking, I can't read an entire book like this, only because that first chapter is a lot of telling and a lot of being talked at, and I didn't want to spend the entire book feeling like I was being lectured. If this doesn't sound like your jam, I get it, not mine either, but I'm happy to report it's only the first and last chapters that read this way. The other chapters, though told from the first person point of view of that certain character, read more like a book than someone talking at you. The author also does a great job of slowly showing us the true personalities of the characters and changing your opinion of characters as you learn more about them from other narrators' points of view. One of the students responsible for Manami's death is painted as a psycho from Yuko's point of view, but then you begin to feel sorry for them in the second chapter, and I began to think that maybe they were an okay person who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But then when you finally hear the story from their perspective, you realize that no, they really were pretty fucked up, but then you understand why. The students did a horrible thing. It's not to be forgiven or underplayed. But the author shows them as complex individuals who are up against some pretty shitty environmental factors that led them to do this. I can also see that on one hand, you could say that maybe one of the suspects was just a spoiled brat, the other was a bully who was handed one too many bad cards. 
But at the end of the day, a four-year-old girl was killed, and her mama wants the kids to pay. And they do. Though it's not in the way you might think. Now don't worry, I'm not going to completely give away the ending. But I will say it's satisfying and has a nice little twist. While I never fully connected with the book as a whole, I got through it pretty quickly, and it was definitely different from anything I've ever read. So kudos to the author for that. Now, here comes the slight spoiler. You can jump ahead about two minutes to skip over it. One issue I had with the book, and issue sounds like a really strong word, but while talking to the students about Manami's death and why she's leaving, Yuko tells them that she's tainted the two suspected killers' milk with HIV. She tells the class that her ex-husband and Manami's father had AIDS, though both Yuko and Manami were spared. They didn't catch the virus. But she tells them that she had drawn some of his blood and injected it into their milk cartons to potentially infect the students who had killed her daughter. So now they have to live out their days knowing that their days are numbered, or something to that effect. Now on one hand, I can see where someone telling a middle schooler in their class that you had tainted their milk with HIV and now they could potentially catch it. They're likely to believe you, and yes, there's going to be a lot of emotional turmoil that could be excruciating for them. But at the same time, it felt like spreading misinformation. I get the book was first published in Japan in 2008, and in the last 14 years or 15 years, we've made a ton of progress in HIV research. But even back then, you couldn't catch HIV from drinking some tainted milk. It just That just sits really weird with me. That said, it was still a pretty interesting read. Didn't love it. It didn't blow me away, but I did enjoy it well enough. I gave it three stars on Goodreads. I read a lot last week, so you get an extra review this week. Yay you. I'll close out with Four Found Dead by Natalie D. Richards. This book was first published by Sourcebooks Fire on May 2nd, 2023. The synopsis reads, At the movie theater where Joe works, the last show has ended, but the nightmare is just beginning. Tonight, Tempest Theaters is closing forever, the last remaining business in a defunct shopping mall. The moviegoers have left, and Joe and her six co-workers have the final shift, cleaning up popcorn and mopping floors for the last time. But after an unexpected altercation puts everyone on edge, the power goes out. Their manager disappears, along with the keys to the lobby doors and the theater safe, where the crew's phones are locked each shift. Then, the crew's tension turns to terror when Joe discovers the dead body of one of her co-workers. Now, their only chance to escape the murderer in their midst is through the dark, shuttered mall. With its boarded-up exits and disabled fire alarms, the complex is filled with hiding places for both pursuer and pursued. In order to survive this night, Joe and her friends must trust one another, navigate the sprawling ruins of the mall, and outwit a killer before he kills again. This book was a lot of fun, though, again, not what I thought I was getting into. After reading the synopsis, I thought for sure I was going to get a group of teens being stalked by a homicidal maniac in an abandoned mall in this slasher, crazy killer sort of way. That's not what I got. In fact, we know who the killer is from the get-go. If you've not read this yet, though, don't get discouraged if you were hoping for a slasher book, because it's still a lot of fun. As the synopsis tells us, it's the last night of Tempest Theaters. The mall the movie theater is attached to is long out of business and is being repurposed. Joe, Lexi, Summer, Naomi, Hannah, Quincy, and Hudson work to shut down the theater with their hot-headed asshole of a boss, Clayton. 
After the last customer leaves, they lock the door. The crew begins to clean up one last time before heading off to IHOP to celebrate. Clayton seems especially on edge, and when his wife shows up accusing him of something, a heated argument ensues. All the teens want is to get Clayton to unlock the safe that holds their cell phones and their car keys so they can get the hell out of there, but then Clayton storms off, the power cuts out, and a scream is heard. One of the teens is dead, and another who saw it all happen is completely traumatized. Could Clayton be responsible, or did someone sneak in somehow? Whatever the case, the teens are desperate to escape, but without Clayton, they can't get their stuff, nor can they get out of the locked theater. So off they go into the big, dark, abandoned mall, hoping to find an exit before being caught by the killer. Again, I went into this one hoping for a sort of crazy slasher in an abandoned mall, and while that sounds like a tired trope, it's one that I love, one that I think would have worked very well in this setting. Knowing who the killer was so early in the novel sort of changed the game for me. We didn't have that added element of shock or confirmation when the killer is finally revealed. I love that stuff. There was plenty of speculation, and at times it appeared that maybe one of the characters might have been in cahoots with the killer and maybe had been leading the others toward an untimely death instead of to safety, which was kind of fun. The book is filled with a lot of action, even some tense moments. The author does a great job of making you care about and root for the characters, though I wish I had gotten to know the first two victims a bit better so that their deaths were a little more impactful. But on the flip side of that, I can see where this may have slowed the story down a bit and wasn't exactly necessary to the plot, so probably best that we didn't get that. I also liked how the book was structured. Now and then we would get a newspaper clipping or some other sort of communication that was sent after the events of that night, which gave us a glimpse into not only the victims' lives, but also some of the aftermath, which heightened the suspense. While this one didn't completely blow me away, it was still an enjoyable and quick read. I gave it three stars on Goodreads. That's the end of this week's reviews. Don't forget to join me over on Instagram for even more bookish fun. The handle there is JustReadItAlreadyPod. You can also find a link on the show's website at JustReadItAlready.com. I also have some new bookish merch available on the website, so be sure to check that out. And while you're there, send me a message. I'll read it on the show, or if you're brave enough, send me a voice message and I'll play that on the show. Join me next week for my thoughts on Did You Hear About Kitty Carr by Crystal Smith-Paul, The Last Word by Taylor Adams, and Chain Gang All-Stars by Nanai Kwame Ajay Brenya. I know I said last week that I'd start offering four reviews a week, but this past week was a slow book week for me, so you'll only get three next week. Promise to make them count, though. Have a great week. Have a great week.